Welcome to Photoactive, a podcast about photography and technology. I'm Kirk McElhern. And I'm Jeff Carlson. This week, we're very happy to welcome Brian Jones. Brian describes himself on the About page of his website as a retinal neuroscientist, photographer, and advocate for specialized knowledge. Brian, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you. It's a pleasure. I, I have to say that when I saw that retinal neuroscientist, that just tickled an itch inside me because... I, I don't do science or medicine, but I'm really curious, and I'll explain why in a second, particularly. But that idea of neuroscience and vision is something that's always fascinated me. Probably since when I was a teenager, I got a book of M.C. Escher drawings. Yeah. And then um, when um, Hofstadter's book, Goodell Escher Bach, came out, yeah. um, that, that sort of stuff changed my life back then. And of course, I took a different path. Um, but Looking into that with photography is extremely interesting. So here's why I'm particularly interested in talking about how we see versus how the camera sees. I have amblyopia, mm -hmm. so I don't have stereo vision. I have no depth perception. Mm -hmm. So unlike most people, I see what the camera sees. Right. And that I wonder if that means that when I'm taking pictures, composing photos, I'm more able to pre-visualize what the camera is going to see. That, that may be. That, that's actually kind of interesting um, because, you know, what a camera does. So, so, yeah, so this is kind of interesting because, you know, we think of our eyes as, as cameras. Um, and, and there's a lot of, you know, talk about how similar they are. And, um, and from an optical standpoint, that's true, right? Um, we have, uh, so at the very front of the eye, um, you have this transparent piece of tissue called the cornea, uh, and that actually does a lot of um, uh, correction. And in fact, in a lot of people, when you do um, uh, like vision correction surgery, right, radiokeratotomy, LASIK, that sort of thing, you're actually operating on that cornea, that thin layer of transparent tissue to reshape it so that the image focuses properly on the back of your retina. Uh, and then behind that, you have, you have a lens right? And, and you have your iris sort of around that, and that functions as the, the aperture. You can sort of think of it as the aperture. Well, it is an aperture. Uh, and and, and so, so the correlation between that and a camera is pretty precise. Um, and then you've got the retina at the back of your eye, which is your imaging sensor, right, of sorts. Or your film. Yeah, your film. You know. <laughs> uh, but, but the weird thing is... Uh, you know, the retina is like, it's not just a sensor, it's, it's a little compute device, right? It's a highly parallel computing device uh, that's actually built backwards from how you think it might be built, right? So the, the, the actual photoreceptors themselves, the sensors themselves, the specialized neurons, are at the back of the retina. And the retina is sort of transparent, and so photons have to pass through the retina to get all the way to the back to the, to the, uh, to the photoreceptors, before they detect them and then pass that information forward through this sort of circuitry. And, and the circuitry does things like, uh, you know, calculates luminance, uh, light going up, light going down, absolute luminance, contrast between patches of light. Um, so it's kind of adjusting the, the, the highlights and shadows, the exposure? Absolutely. Um, the exposure, highlights and shadows, detail, velocity, it makes velocity calculations, angle, direction, uh, and basically calculates a bunch of primitives before sending that information onto your brain for further processing. Um, and, and, and the amblyopia part, um, that, that occurs in brain when, you're, when your brain is comparing the inputs between the, the retina on your right versus the retina on your left, right? So it, it effectively calculates a sort of parallax, um, uh, typically, um, and, and that can clearly go awry uh, in a lot of folks. Um, but, but what we see on a camera sensor is sort of a flattened projected image, right? And so, so we don't, unless you're shooting with a rangefinder like a Leica, you know, you don't appreciate that parallax um, when, when, when you're trying to focus. Um, and so, so what, what a lot of amblyopes typically do um, when they're trying to sort of judge depth is that they sort of inherently range by parallax, right? And, and you can see this in a lot of creatures. Like if you look at octopus, um, octopus uh, are, are not, uh, they're, 
they don't have binocular vision. And so what they'll do is, is you'll see their eye, and, and they have this very sophisticated eye that's actually built differently from ours. The photoreceptors are in the front. But what they'll do is they'll look at something, and then they'll bob their head up and down, right, and, and do a range calculation. And you'll actually see that in people, too, you know, so, so like... Because we can see the movement of the layers. Like I'm looking at a the lamp on my desktop, and if I move my head up, I can see the speaker behind right. it moving. And that gives me an idea, an estimate of the distance between the two. Right, right. And so, so uh, typically when you see a photographer, right, and, and, and the camera's up to their face and their eyes, their eyes on the camera, um, they will do the same thing. Right, because they have lost now depth perception because they have this projected image coming through the camera, and so you'll see a photographer, and and their 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 faces up to the camera, and then they'll move like left and right or up and down, right, and and get that sort of range by parallax because they've lost now depth perception in the camera. Is that why so many photographers crouch down? <laughs> <laughs> the, the photographers crouch. That must lead to back problems over time. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure it does. Yeah, especially carrying lots of heavy gear. <laughs> yes, yes. We were talking before the show about all the heavy gear and how you've gone into simplicity. We'll get to your cameras in a little bit. Yeah. Um, what's interesting, though, is it's almost as if we don't think about how the eye works. We think that the camera is the same as the eye, but obviously it's extremely different. From, from, for one thing, the eye is actually showing things upside down and the brain is flipping it the right way and the camera's not doing that. But is it, by better understanding the eye, how can that help us in photography? How can it help, how can we apply the understanding of the way we see to the way the camera sees? Because it is, it is a translation. Mm -hmm. It is. Um, and so... I don't know. So, so this is actually kind of tough because um, people have been studying the eye for as long as there have been humans, right? It's, you know, uh, you can go back and look through Egyptian literature um, and, and, you know, uh, Mesopotamian literature. And, and there's all these references, you know, to the eye and, and the window to the soul and, and, and this sort of thing. Um, but people didn't really start studying the, the neuroscience of the retina until about uh, 150, 130 years ago. Um, and, uh, and that's not that long after the camera was developed. Precisely. Yeah. And so, so there was, there's sort of this parallel track between wanting to understand how we see the world and wanting to document the world and preserve the world. And, and the, the, the biggest difference actually between retinas and cameras is that the camera allows us to capture a moment in time, right? You know, going through Cartier Bresson's, you know, work, you know, it's a decisive moment, yeah. Decisive moment, right? Um, but uh, the retina, uh, you can actually do. There's, there's, there's some tricks that you can do, um, and and if you fixate your vision on a single point and and don't move your eye and try really hard not to move your eye the world starts fading away and it fades to gray, right? Because the retina depends, the way the retina is wired is it depends upon an image dancing over the surface of the retina, constantly changing. And, and, and that's true because even if you hold your head very still, because you've got these micro saccades, your eyes are constantly sort of jittering uh, and your brain edits all of that out. Um, you've got, you know, cardiac impulse, you've got blood vessels in your, in your eye and your retina. And every time your heart beats, that sort of shakes, shakes the imaging surface a little bit and your brain edits that out too. Um, so it's got built in, uh, image stabilization. It's got built in image stabilization. It's also got uh, a system that, uh, um, so, so this, this, this gets a little weird in that, um, the visual system is sort of uh, this amazing sort of educator on how we're basically synthesizing our reality moment by moment by moment. And so our brain lives in this black box. And our brain can only understand what's going on in the outside world by the sensory systems that feed into it. Um, and so... Uh, our sensory systems are not perfect, 
And so what our brain does is it takes this, this afferent information, the streaming information that's coming into the brain, uh, and it tries to make sense of it. Uh, and where there's gaps in information, it fills in the gaps. So, so the classic sort of example is uh, a baseball pitcher and, and trying to hit a, hit a, hit a baseball. And, and the fastest pitchers um, can pitch so fast that your brain actually cannot see the ball for the entire trajectory from the pitcher's mound to where you're going to hit it. It's not biologically possible for those circuits to hit your retina, for your retina to send that information to brain, your brain to process that, and then give feedback to, to your conscious system and then to the motor control circuits uh, that control your eyes and everything. So what your brain does is creates a model of where it thinks that ball is going to go from the very first information that comes in. Um, and this is why, you know, screwballs work. This is why, you know, uh, the, the different kinds of, of pitches um, that are intended to sort of deceive the batter work because, because the ball in its path breaks the model of what the batter thinks the path is going to be. Um, and so, in effect, what your brain is doing is it's synthesizing its own reality. Um, and so, so you know, f- from that sense, yeah, we're kind of living in a, in, a, in a hologram, if you will. Um, but but our, our hearing does that. Our vision system does that. Our, our mechanosensation system does that. Our temperature systems do that. Um, and, and so, so vision, vision is kind of this sort of hallucination, if you will, uh, that's generated moment by moment by moment. I can't help but think that this sounds a lot like computational photography and how all that pre-processing and post-processing and how you end up with an image, but it's a massively edited, assembled, put together image. And I mean, I don't want to make every everything we say become an analogy of this is how it works in a camera and this is how our brain works. But I personally have never heard that kind of a description of, of how eyesight works that makes it a lot more involved and a lot more of that that uh, processing to, to get to a certain point. I also want to say that it makes it sound like we're living in the matrix. <laughs> right. We are. We kind right. of are. We are in many ways. <laughs> but but getting to Jeff's point about the computational photography, how much of that developed from the kind of work you do, the neuroscientific yeah. stuff? Is that where they started, or is or is that sort of a parallel line that they took, looking at how the eye works and the brain works, and figured out that there are ways to do that in a camera or in a phone, in this case. So, so I think it's parallel. Uh, well, it is parallel in, in a lot of ways in that, um, you know, our, the technology that we've had uh, for, for photography uh, is, is actually pretty limited, um, you know, in terms of, you know, in, in the early days, it was film sensitivity and, and it was getting enough photons actually through, you know, the first sort of lenses onto a big, you know, sort of wet collodion imaging plate. Uh, and they had to, you know, add lots of additional photons, you know, with chemical flashes in the early days. Um, and, and, and there's actually some interesting discussion there on, on sort of uh, that plays into sort of structural racism, right? Uh, some of the early uh, photographic technologies in, in New Zealand culture, um, because of the flash and the chemicals involved, the tattoos weren't rendered on the final image. That's so, right. right. So yeah. I've seen some pictures recently that that process the colors differently to bring that out. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and so so the the photography itself has sort of been this um, uh, an attempt to sort of duplicate what we think the visual system is capable of, but the technology has held us back for a long, long time. Um, the advantages that the that the technology has had is has sort of been um, you know, calculus in, in one sense, and that we can we can do longer term sort of uh, integrations of, of photos to do star trails and things like that 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 humans can't see. But um, but the human visual system, the dynamic range 
in the human visual system is far wider than photography can allow. And what computational photography is now starting to do is, is bridge that, right? So, so your visual system, the way your retinas are constructed, you have rod photoreceptors and you have cone photoreceptors. And the rod photoreceptors are designed to work at very, very low light levels, right? Um, so they're the high ISO receptors. They are the high ISO receptors, right? And they're they're the uh, photoreceptors that you're using uh, on anything, you know, more dim than than moonlight, you know, like like half a moon. Um, and they they only see black and white. Um, and ah, so we do have monochrome sensors. That's good do. to know. We absolutely <laughs> do. Yeah. And, um, and there's, this, there's this really cool circuit in the retina. So, so mammalians, us, we, we re-evolved vision. So um, at the end of the Jurassic, mammalians lost a lot of our visual pathways. And we redeveloped this rod pathway on top of the much older evolutionary cone pathway, right? So uh, if you look at a lot of uh, older organisms, reptiles, uh, amphibians, birds, um, they all have cone-dominated um, systems. And so the rods were piggybacked on top of the system. Um, and so what the rods do is there's a circuit that comes through the retina from the rods to the rod bipolar cells to the cell called an A2 amacrine cell. And the A2 amacrine cell is sort of a crossover cell that takes rod circuitry and couples it into the older cone circuitry. And what that allowed mammalians to do was function at really low light levels and then function at really high bright light levels, right? And so, so the interesting sort of trick is that um, if you go out on, on like a half moon night, right, or a three quarters moon night, there's no color in the world, right? And that's the expression at night, all cats are gray. Yeah, exactly. Um, and and so, so it's only your rod photoreceptors that are working. And so, so when a moon is bright and full, you can start to see color in the world. Um, that color exists, right? But, but your sensory system is just not capable of seeing it until the luminance comes up to a point where your cone photoreceptors start to work. Uh, and at that point, the rod photoreceptors actually shut off. Um, Yet we don't have fast enough apertures in our eyes to see like, say, cats can see at night. Yeah, so cats actually have this cool additional feature that's sort of like an image amplifier, right? There's there's a there's a a structure at the back of lots of animals' eyes, cats, cows, dogs, um, called a tapetum lucidum, and uh, it's a it's a layer of guanine crystals, um, and what they do is they act as as a reflector, so the photons come in, come through the retina come through the photoreceptors, bounce off this mirror at the back of the eye, back into the photoreceptors, and, and it's, it's effectively an image amplifier. So that's why sometimes when I take photos of my cats and it's somewhat dark and there's a light on someplace, their eyes shine. Right, yeah. Same, same with cows, same with, you know, uh, foxes, other... Never done it with cows, but I did get one photo of my, one of my cats sitting on a bedside table right next to a charger, mm -hmm. and his eyes were all green because of that, and it looked like he was being charged by the charger. Right. exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, so that, that's sort of a cool, cool image amplifier. Um, the, the, the downside of that is that um, it, it degrades the visual quality a little bit because the photons are bouncing around and they're not, they're not as precisely focused on, on the same point. Yet my cats catch mice at night. Yeah. I live next to a farm and they yeah. they just go crazy at night. Yeah. So, so cats are, are using vision. Cats are also using vibration. And sound. Yeah. Sound. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. So, so the world that they live in, um, is, is a very different world. Yeah. Uh, that, you know, they're, they're sort of perceptual degrees of freedom. So, okay, this is really technical, but now I want to get it a little bit more concrete. What focal length is our eyes? Oh, gosh. Um, I know that there are a lot of people who say different things. Some people say it's like 35 millimeters. Some say it's like 50. Some say it's like 40. But what I find interesting is that 
what used to be the sort of standard first lens that someone would get with a film camera was a 50 millimeter lens. And it was more or less what we would see in the real world because I guess the idea of a camera then was to capture what you see. And then if you look at little Instamatic cameras, it was a wider angle lens because you get more depth of field and you're more likely to want to get a group of people and then you're not going to be too far away, et cetera. But let's assume our eyes are a 50 millimeter focal length. What happens in a photographer's mind when they switch to a lens, when you're out walking around, shooting whatever, and you're seeing the world in 50 millimeters, and all of a sudden you pick up your camera and it's got a 100 millimeter lens. Does the brain perceive this in some special way, or is it just looking like it's it's bigger? So... So there's a couple of things going on here. Um, one is, yeah, so the very first lens I, I bought for, for my first film camera um, was a 50 millimeter lens. And uh, that's how I thought I saw the world for a long time. Uh, and, then, and then I tried a 35 millimeter lens and it's like, oh, oh, this, this is how everybody sees the world, right? This is sort of a natural view for me. Um, the neuroscience is a little different. Right. So so our eyes actually see a much wider field of view. Right. Our eyes almost have like a fisheye view, you know, from almost like 180 degrees. You know, so if you hold your hands, you know, at the sides of your heads and you start pushing them forward to the point where you can see them, that's probably 168, 170 degrees right right in there. And we can see that. Right. But we don't typically pay attention to the information out there, right? Well, not only that, but it's not as, as clear, is it? No, it's not. So, so we, have, we have a structure in our retina called the fovea. Uh, and the fovea is, is an area of very dense cone photoreceptors. Um, and that is represented on our brain uh, with, with a relatively large area. So, so that means that uh, we've dedicated a lot of brain circuitry to understanding and perceiving this very narrow sort of three degree range at the center of, 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 our, of our attention. And as you and, mentioned earlier, the eye's constantly moving around to expand the coverage of that little space. Right. And so, so most of what we pay attention to is this sort of central few degrees of, of vision. That's, that's what we use to read with. That's what we use to sort of drive with. That's what we sort of use um, uh, for, for most of the things in our lives, this, this sort of very restricted field of vision. And so typically when we look through a camera, we're, we're utilizing that, that very few degrees that we sort of attend to, uh, in, in most of our everyday life. Uh, and, and, and so that can lead to some, some, uh, varied perceptions, right? So, so I remember once, uh, I was flying from Los Angeles to Auckland, um, New Zealand, and the moon, there was a full moon that came up over the wing of the plane, um, and, and I said to myself, that is the biggest moon I've ever seen in my entire life, <laughs> right? It was huge. It was massive, and, and, you know, it just, it almost did not seem real. It was so big, and I pulled out a camera. I had this little point-and-shoot um, uh uh, Canon power shot. Uh, and, and, and I managed to stabilize the camera in the window enough and, and, and get a photo of this. And I look at the picture in the camera and it's nothing, man. I mean, it's just, you know, and it was like, this is, this is not real. This is not what I'm seeing, right? This is not a faithful reproduction of what my sensory system is actually documenting. Um, and, uh, and so, so the reality was the moon wasn't any bigger because we we're, you know, 40,000 feet up over the Pacific. Um, uh, it just, it was the only thing in the sky and, and what I was attending to, it just, it seemed big, mm-hmm. right? Um, but the reality is the, the, the image that the moon subtends, if, if you sort of draw out the distance on the moon and calculate how much space it occupies on the back of your retina using sort of standard optic calculate optics calculations uh, it was no bigger but my perception was that it was bigger that happens a lot here in seattle we have mount rainier which is visible and there are sometimes like driving down uh, i-5 
you'll you'll come around a corner and it, it just looks huge. And part of it is is the framing among, you know, the hills and buildings and things like that. And you're like, like, wow, you know, first of all, it's a very common thing to say, oh, the mountain is out if, if it's clear. And so, you know, there's there's Mount Rainier. Woo, it's amazing. It's beautiful. And then you drive a little bit further and maybe the, the road curves again. And even though you've gotten closer to it, then you look at it again and it's it, it just looks smaller. It's this really weird optical illusion. So. And there's also the illusion when you're driving toward a mountain, it doesn't look like you're getting any closer until you get really close. Yeah. I lived in the Alps for a dozen years and we would often have that. You'd be going down a valley and it would look like it was far away and then all of a sudden it would seem closer. Yeah, yeah. You said you see a 35 millimeter focal length. Does everyone see a 35 millimeter focal length? Because I don't think I do. No, I, I think, you know, so, sort of the, the biology is everybody sees, you know, 160 degree focal length, right? Um, their, their field of view is, is, is actually really broad. We just don't spend a whole lot of time paying attention to what's out here unless something starts moving very fast or there's a, or there's a contrast thing or, or, or there's, there's something moving in our periphery, right, that, that then signals our brain to say, hey, pay attention because there's something over here, right? But I'm not speaking about field of view because there's two ways you can talk about lenses. One is the field of view, so the angle of view that the lens covers. Correct. But the other is the relative size of things. So I'm looking at my iMac. If I'm looking through a lens, a wide angle lens, it'll seem smaller. If I'm looking through a telephoto, it'll seem larger. Right. So, so part, part of that is, is the optical calculations that you're projecting through, through the lens onto the imaging sensor. So there is going to be some magnification, you know, with a 100 or a 135 millimeter, or a 200 millimeter lens versus a 35 millimeter lens. Um, and so, so you're mapping, you're sort of trying to fit the world outside that's visible through that frame onto the imaging sensor. And, um, you know, figuring out, you know, what humans actually see in, you know, what our, you know, what our f-stop is, we're probably, I don't know, you know, depending upon how old we are, we probably go from f1.6 to, you know, uh, if we're young and have perfect vision, you know, probably around 0 0.9, um, you know, uh, but, uh, but the actual focal length um, isn't, isn't a really good correlate because like, like I said, there's, there's that area of attention in our fovea that only on our retina occupies a few degrees, but to us, we fill the whole world with that. Right. Um, so, so when we use a 35 millimeter lens or a 50 millimeter lens or a 200 millimeter lens, our whole world ends up filling that viewfinder. And then what we do when, when we're using a longer focal length lens is we end up sort of panning around more, right? To try and sort of fit it in. Or we use that lens to sort of uh, collapse the distances, you know, right. to other technical effects that we want to do. Like, right. you know, you, you, you've seen the pictures of, of the full moon and, and the people standing on top of the, on top of the mountains, you know, made, yeah. made with like a 2000 millimeter lens, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, to sort of collapse that distance. Um, so, so I don't know. That, that's that's actually kind of a tough question to me. Is is what what focal length is our eyes? So so basically, what I'm taking away from this is we simply can't compare our eyes to a camera. In some ways, the whole idea of a lens and, and an aperture and a sensor that we can, but in terms of focal length, it's a different story. If if we were to look through, if I were to take a piece of cardboard and cut out um, a frame, or just look through my fingers. Mm -hmm. I would see less of the world like I would in a picture. Right. But it's not, and my eyes are the same. Right. Does that right. make sense? Yeah. So, so what we typically do um, in, uh, you know, we, we live in a dynamic world, right? And so, so if something is, you know, 180 or 190 degrees behind us, there are other sensory cues and we'll just turn our head, right? And, and what we end up doing when, when, we, when we have these microsaccades, when, when the image is sort of shifting around, or you know, we, we attend to something different, or we shift our gaze, or we turn our heads, um, our brain basically ends up synthesizing a larger world for us. And this gets back 
to just comment on computational photography. Um, so, you know, what the computational photography techniques are doing is, is they're taking a, a, a wider variety of exposures and they're condensing them into, you know, what, what we used to call sort of high dynamic range photography, right? Um, and, and they're doing other things, you know, like eliminating motion blur and, and some of the computational photography techniques in phones are, are actually pretty impressive now. Um, and, and so, so in a sense, what your brain and what your retina are doing is sort of computationally fusing information to give us uh, a different perception of the world. And, and there are things that we can do to actually modify that, right? So um, you made the comment earlier that, you know, the, the image of the world is actually upside down on our retinas. Yeah. Your brain understands this, right, and, and makes that conversion for you. But, but there were some experiments back in the 60s where, where you can put a pair of glasses on with a prism that flips the world upside down. Um, and so as long as you wear these glasses, everything looks upside down to you. And, you know, you, you walk around for a couple of days and you bump into things and you can't pick anything up and you're knocking glasses over. And, and, um, and then uh, you wake up one morning and the world is back. And your brain has flipped the world again to make it to make it's it. It's adapted match. to the glasses. It's adapted to the glasses, right? So yeah. there's this plasticity in 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 our visual system in our brains that that fixes a lot of that stuff. And so so when we have you know disease or trauma in our eyes, um, it's not uncommon, for instance, for people to have visual deficits in their retinas. They 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 lose uh, areas of vision. And what their brain slowly over time does is it fills these gaps in and they're actually, it, it happens so slowly and your brain is so good at sort of creating this illusion that they're actually not aware of it. Right. And so this is why annual vision checkups are so important. I have hmm. floaters in my eyes and when, when one moves or a new one shows up, it's like, I can't see anything but that. And then after a few <laughs> days, I don't yeah. see it anymore because the brain has just figured out how to filter it out. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So with all of this in mind, you as a photographer, when you go out to shoot, is any of this top of mind or do you just internalize? Like, like, like how as a photographer does all of this knowledge affect what you shoot and how you shoot? I, I think it's evolved over time, right? I mean, I mean, the early days of photography for me, uh, it, was, it, was, it was film um, and you know, there was, there was a lot of, there was a lot of time spent just trying to sort of understand the tools. Right. Um, and I was a photographer before I was a neuroscientist. So, you know, you're like, okay, how many degrees of freedom are we dealing with? Right. There's, there's film sensitivity, you know, there's, there's shutter speed and there's aperture and that's basically it. Right. And, and you can fit, you know, the entire world of photography into those three variables. And so I spent a lot of time just trying to figure that out. Uh, and uh, the neuroscience started sort of trickling in a little bit. Uh, and the interesting thing was when I, f when I started shooting black and white digital only, um, that forced me to start thinking about luminance and light independent of color. I think for a long time for me, uh, I struggled with color. Uh, and, and I struggled with framing and, um, I was looking for form and the color ended up confusing me a lot. Mm -hmm. And so being forced into a paradigm where I was only shooting black and white sort of brought me back to the black and white film days and, and sort of got me to sort of start seeing light in terms of luminance and form, uh, again, uh, without the distraction of color. Uh, and then, so when you start shooting color again, you know, it's, it's like you sort of learn those lessons along. Um, and, and where but I when you started shooting black and white digital, were you shooting on a camera with a live view or were you using a Leica where you were just seeing the rangefinder, And so you were still composing in color, but getting your pictures later in black and white. Yeah. So, so I was using the monochrome, 
Um, and and so so we had, we were joking about that earlier when when the when the Leica Monochrome first came out, um, uh, my friend Trent and I, I you know I, I was making fun of it. Um, it didn't make any sense to me, right? Why why would you spend extra money on a camera that could only see black and white when you can just make a black and white conversion of any because it's a digital image, right? Who cares? Um, and uh, it turns out I was wrong. I was really really wrong. Um, and the, the sensitivity of the black and white sensor and, and the precision of the imaging and the resolution, uh, when you, when you throw away the, the bare chip, you know, the, the interpolation from the red, green, blue pixels, the three color filters, yeah, yeah. was, was just glorious. Um, and, and that was, a, that was a digital camera. So I could at least get, uh, you know, in, in the black and white film days, right. You had. You'd, you'd capture the image and there was this delay of, you know, days to weeks before you developed your film to, to actually get that feedback loop going. The, 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 the monochrome was, was a digital. They've come out with a, with a more recent, uh, like I came out with a camera, the 262, that, that didn't have a digital uh, screen on the back, right? Right. But, but the monochrome does. Um, yeah. And um, so, so you're, you're able to sort of get a more immediate feedback yeah but but not through the viewfinder right because it's right. a rangefinder viewfinder so you could right. use it like a film camera and see the world in color and still shoot in black and white correct if you're yeah. looking at the lcd then you can get the black and white i see your point yeah exactly yeah, yeah. so so yeah um you you it sort of forces you so the best photographers i, I think if, if you read you know a lot of photographers uh, biographies and things like that. Um, I mean, Ansel Adams was was a was a big advocate of this sort of pre-visualizing your image, right? Um, and uh, that was another sort of lesson to me in pre-visualization, right? You're you're looking at the world through an optical viewfinder and you're imagining what it would be like when you actually click the shutter. Um, and so shooting black and white helped with that. Um, from a neuroscience perspective, uh, I think. That has informed my sort of understanding of uh, shooting at uh, varying light levels. So at the very low light levels and at the very bright light levels, you know, you can sort of, you understand what's happening in the human visual system. And I think with a lot of folks, there is that period of confusion when, you know, they see something in, in their eye and they're trying to duplicate it on the film and they don't quite know how, because there's there's a there's a technological and there's a sensory disconnect, um, and so once you sort of understand that, then it makes it a little easier for you to try, sort of pre-visualize the image that you want to occur on 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 the sensor. From a neuroscientific point of view, do we, when we approach a photo, it's a simulacrum of an event, a moment in time. When we look at a black and white photo, which is an alteration of that moment in time, do we process that image differently because of the lack of color? I, I would argue we do, right? Um, it, it, uh, it removes the distractions of color. I mean, you know, humans are, um, even the colorblind among us, are, are driven by by gradations in brightness and hue and color. Um, you know, the, the, the colorblinds still see color, right? They just see a restricted range of color, um, two colors versus three colors. Um, and, and there's actually some good evidence that some, uh, uh, some females are um, tetrachromatic, right? So uh, there's, there's a gene, so, um, there's a gene duplication in, in those women uh, that occurs on the X chromosome. And because they have two X chromosomes, they have two opportunities for a mutation to occur. And if that happens, then the dynamic range of that color space uh, that they can see is actually expanded relative to, to a, a trichromat. Um, and so, so that becomes really important to us. And um, you know, some colors are more important than others. Uh, if you go into the animal kingdom uh, and you see uh, red uh, on, on, on an animal in the forest, um, that's generally bad, 
right? Uh, and, and some animals use that as, as a form of, of warning. And green is a sort of a camouflage color. And green can be a camouflage color, um, you know, uh, and blue can be, you know, so blue is rare in, in the animal world. Uh, but among some birds, you know, like the, you know, you see these just unbelievable bird of paradise, right, where they've got these blue patterns and these flashes of blue uh, and, and they can use that as signaling because that attracts attention, that stands out in the world. And so black and white photography sort of throws all that out and, and you're just using luminance and contrast and gradations. Um, and shapes. And shapes, yeah. 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 Just to mention two photographers who I like a lot, Michael Kenna, who we interviewed on the podcast, um, he told me that he doesn't use color because he likes not having that distraction of the color. Right. He, fo he likes focusing on the shapes. And at the opposite, I saw a documentary about William Eggleston where well, he was talking about how he looks at his photos upside down to see if they still work because he's more interested in <laughs> both the colors and the shapes. Yeah, yeah. No, and, and that's, that's the beauty of art, right? Is that, you know, um, I mean, we used to do, you know, sort of years before the pandemic, um, but, you know, when photo walks were, were really popular, um, we, we used to have a, a photo walk series where, you know, we'd use social media, the early days of Twitter, and we'd announce a photo walk, and sometimes a dozen people would show up, and sometimes 200 people would show up. And the fun part of photo walks for me was that you'd walk through the same environment with, you know, five people, a dozen people, 100 people, and then everybody would upload those photos um, at the end of the day, and you'd get to see what somebody else saw in that same environment. Um, and that was a lot of fun. We, we, we actually did a photo walk of, of my, uh, the place where I work, the Moran Eye Center, uh, here at the University of Utah, and we had uh, 50 people come through and, and photograph the environment, the lab space and clinical space and um, atrium. And, and I've worked here you know, almost every day for, you know, a couple of decades now. And I saw new things through other people's eyes uh, that I had never paid attention to or I had never seen before. Uh, and and so, so to me, that's, that's sort of the beauty of, of photography and the beauty of art is that you get to see what somebody else attends to uh, and, and pays attention to. So one last comment, and this is pure neuroscience. This is pure perception. I find that if I'm looking, I have a lot of photo books. I have hundreds of photo books. I'm a photo book collector. And I find that if I'm looking at stuff by a particular photographer a lot, and then I go out, I see the kinds of things that they're looking at. Like if I go through a bunch of William Eggleston books, I see the world like William Eggleston. Yeah. And I'm taking pictures of that sort of stuff. It's like it's imprinting a vision, someone, it's imprinting someone else's vision in my mind and telling my mind that I can look for that kind of thing. What are your favorite photo books? Um, a lot of Eggleston, um, particularly the Los Alamos, the second, what is it, Los Alamos Revisited. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I love Michael Kenna's work, uh, particularly stuff in Japan. Yeah. Um, Joel Myrowitz. Um, the, uh, no, both his street cool. photography and then when he went up to Cape Cod and he did these things with the big 8x10 camera and he's, he's doing the open space and, and the, the, the gradations of light in, in twilight and things like that. So it's, it's been interesting that sort of the books and what you sort of attend to, you're, you're absolutely right. You see, you start seeing things the way that that photographer sees things through those books. And that's why they're so wonderful uh, is that you can sort of take these journeys and, and then when you go to some place, it's kind of fun to see if you can, you know, duplicate that photo that, that, that they made. You know, can, but can not even duplicate the photo they made, but duplicate the, the mindset that, that framed the world in the way they did. That's the way I think of it. Right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Because you're trying to sort of, you know, fit yourself into that, that sensory space, that neurosensory space that, you know, and... You know, it's it's hard sometimes because the, the same way. Let's say if you play piano, you want to adopt the phrasing of Bill Evans or or Thelonious Monk, that kind of thing. Right, right. 
and then and then the true mastery is 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 when you start taking all of those information, all of those data, uh, and start synthesizing your own reality and your own sort of view uh, of the world. Uh, and and that's I you know that's that's where style comes from, right? And so so when you see you know a particular photograph by a particular photographer that's made that their style you know you're like oh you know that's that shot by so and so and this one is is clearly shot by so and so you know because it becomes their style yeah okay brian jones this has been fascinating i could talk about this for hours but i think our listeners are probably getting bored by now thank you so much for joining us there'll be a link to your website your instagram where you don't seem to post very much um flickr where you seem to have more photos including cat photos brian (laughs) thanks thank you (laughs) It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Brian. Okay, Jeff, time for our snapshots. What have you got? Well, today I'm going to go away from photography and talk about my other love, which is coffee. (laughs) I laugh because you take more pictures of coffee cups than I take of cats. Wow. I guess that's probably true. It seems like I haven't taken pictures of coffee lately, but I guess I have. Uh, It's it's a (laughs) constant. Um, So I use the service to get beans called Yes Please, Yes Please Weekly, and uh, that's Yes PLZ. Um, it's, it's basically a mail service, and every month they send me a bag of coffee, and um, unlike some coffee services where you can specify, like, I want, you know, this specific uh, roaster and this specific blend, uh, this one is just put together by the folks behind this, and they've consistently had really good coffee and it's different every week, but it's, it's, you know, sort of more of a, a lighter roasts, more of a, a fruitier profile, which I, I tend to like anyway. So, uh, yes, uh, coffee that comes to you from yes, please. That's mine. And you don't even have to go out and pick it up. And I don't even have to go out and pick it up. It just arrives in the mailbox. And, and it's affordable. I've used a few different services, and some of them are, are great, but um, it can really add up. And in this case, I, I should probably disclose, my wife works for Starbucks. And so most of the coffee is from Starbucks because part of her benefit is um, you get free coffee. And so, you know, I mean, I mean not at any time, but you have a certain allotment that you can use. And so that's, that's mostly what we drink. And Starbucks coffee is fine. It's perfectly fine. And then I have this come once a month that, uh, you know, gives me my, my, my nice fruity coffee. So Kirk, what do you have this week? I've got a book. Let me see if I can pick it up here. Oh my goodness. Don't hurt yourself. You're going to throw out your back. It's called Spirit Stones, the Ancient Art of the Scholar's Rock. Ooh. Um, the photographer's name is Jonathan M. Singer. Now, I had never heard of him before. Um, the, 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 I'm, I'm not going to open the book to show you because it's too heavy. Um, the Scholar's <laughs> Rock, or the Gongshu in Chinese, is uh, the, the Chinese people decided that rocks are beautiful, and they are... They decided to take specific types of rocks, and there are um, classifications for the different the the different aesthetics they look for into rocks. And they've made them into works of art, and they mount them on little wooden stands. Um, the, the, this is there's a relationship with bonsai in some ways. Um, and, and I heard about this not long ago. I know someone in Germany who has a who built a Japanese garden. It's about six thousand square meters. It's about an acre and a half. And he was talking about this. He was telling me, this is the original art form, that someone would take a rock and pick it up and say, this is art, this is beautiful. And it's very interesting. I find the concept very interesting as an art form. What's what's really beautiful about this book is this is about 300 pages long, and it's got um, photos of a variety of these things, each one mostly full page, all black and white, which... There's pros and cons um, because some of these rocks are colored, so you're losing out on that. But but black and white, they have a, a, a sort of a constancy across the different images. And these are photos of works of art taken in in such a perfect way that, that highlights the works of art so much. Now, this photographer, um, I'll put a link in the show notes to... Um, a webpage at Abbeville Press, which has published his books. 
Um, before this, he did a book called Fine Bonsai, Art and Nature, and it was very similar um, photos of, of really um, collectible bonsais, the expensive ones. And before that, Botanica Magnifica, Portraits of the World's Most Extraordinary Flowers and Plants. All three of, I haven't seen the other books, but I've seen some of the photos from inside. All three of these are examples of photography as pure representation, yet done with perfect lighting and perfect exposure so you can really get into the objects that are in there. Oh. Um, they're expensive books. This one was actually only about 42 pounds on Amazon, but the list price is something like $95 in the U.S. The other ones are more expensive. Um, they're, all three of them are very large books, um, very heavy, three, 400 pages. Um, it, it's an interesting concept of photography meant to highlight a specific type of object. Very nice. Um, and, and to highlight the beauty of these objects. Thanks for listening to Photoactive. You can find show notes, including any photos we discuss in this episode, at photoactive.co. That's photoactive.co. We couldn't afford the M. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash photoactivecast. That's photoactivecast in one word. You can subscribe to Photoactive in your favorite podcast app or on Apple Podcasts. See the links on our website. And think about leaving us a rating or review in iTunes or in your podcast app.